Well, this week, uh, Voice of the Martyrs sent out an update, as they, they do every week. There was one particular story here I highlighted just as an introduction here. In January 2020, there were five Chinese Christians who attended a conference in Malaysia. And then a year later, Chinese authorities uh, charged them for illegally crossing the national border, even though they did nothing illegal. And three of the believers were convicted and have since served their sentences in jail. However, the trials for two men have been delayed on and on. On August 5th, their trials began. And uh, after hearing arguments from their lawyers, the judge called a recess and announced that the trials would commence at a later date. But to create added pressure, the police also took action against the believers' wives. The one wife was interrogated the day before her husband's trial, so she wouldn't be able to come, and detained for 15 days for an illegal worship gathering that the church had held. The other man's wife was able to attend the trial, but then she was eating at a restaurant afterwards, and the police came and took her and put her into a 15-day detention. You see this kind of aggression from authorities in places like China and many other places. There's this rage against Christians. There are many stories like this and much worse. We ask why? Why this aggression? Why are rulers even and judges and police so often opposed to these Christians just, just for worshiping, just for teaching, just for praying? Maybe you felt the temperature in our country rising against Christianity too. The last two years we've seen some things that have opened our eyes. Authorities coming down on Christians. Laws are coming in that effectively make evangelizing certain people risky and illegal. I, I, I could be fined and put in prison probably for a conversation I had last Saturday. So why is there this aggression? Why this attack? And what comfort do Christians have within these attacks? I think Joshua shows us in a vivid display this very truth. That there are attacks from the enemies of God that are going to come against the people of God. Yet, it gives us comfort and hope in the midst of the rage of the enemies. So first of all, in this text, in verses 1 to 5, we see the king's aggressive attack. As we saw last week, at the beginning of chapter 9, it said that these kings were forming a coalition. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. And here we see more detail. There was this king of Jerusalem, Adoni Zedek, who, whose name means Lord of Righteousness, or My Lord is Righteous. And he's the king of Jerusalem. Very interesting because this would be the very city of God, the, the city, the capital city really of the Israelites that they would all go to worship in. This is actually the first mention of the specific name of that city, Jerusalem. Earlier it's called Salem, but here it's called Jerusalem. But it was at that time a Canaanite city. And the king of that city hears about Joshua's campaign and how Gibeon, had joined with them. It says in verse 2, he feared 
greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than I and all its men were warriors. So he calls to these other kings. These are all kings of southern Canaan. Um, Jerusalem was southeast of Gibeon. And then all these cities are in that southern region of Canaan. And so he calls to these other kings. And he's terrified. And so he asks for their help to go up against Gibeon. Verse 4, come up to me and help me, he says. And let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. So they all come up, all these kings with strange names to us. They gather their forces and they go up with their armies and encamp against Gibeon. And they make war against it, as verse 5 says. Now we see here something of the motivation of these kings. Note that. What is their motive in coming against Gibeon and attacking it? Well, it's fear. Verse 2, he feared greatly. We saw that even back in chapter 5, verse 1. The, the kings and the people of the land were fearing. Their hearts were failing before the people of Israel as they saw what Joshua was doing to other cities and kings. And now there was a great city right beside them, Gibeon, who made a covenant with them, so they were afraid. Adonis Zedek saw the writing on the wall. He saw that it spelled doom for him if he didn't do something. And instead of letting fear drive him to repentance or a plea for mercy, like, like Rahab, making a covenant with the people, or even like the Gibeonites, trying by any means possible to get into a treaty with Israel, instead he lets Fear drive him to rage. You know how people have a fight or flight mechanism, right? Maybe if you see a cougar in the woods, you, you either get aggressive, you fight, or you, you flee, right? I might have a different response. Maybe it would just be freeze. I don't know what I would do. But we have this mechanism within us. When we see something that's life-threatening or that's threatening to what is near and dear to us, or something that's under our control. Sometimes the response, the reaction, is aggression. It's to fight. And we see this here. The enemies of God often rage because they feel threatened. They are fearing greatly. Do you know that the devil himself has a fight or flight response? We see this in Revelation 12, verse 12. Where it says, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because why? Because he knows that his time is short. The devil knows that he's, for all intents and purposes, a defeated enemy. He knows that his time is short. He sees the writing on the wall. He feels threatened. And so he rages. He fights against the church. We see in James 4, 7, though, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. As soon as we take up that shield of faith, we put our trust in God Almighty. What can the devil do? He will flee. All the forces of evil really have this kind of response to the kingdom of God. This explains the aggression that we see in the world. The world and the flesh and the devil 
They're all threatened by the conquering kingdom of God. The devil knows his time is short. He knows the Lord Jesus Christ is a threat to his domain of darkness. He knows the the light is shining and the darkness has not overcome it, as John 1 says. He knows the gospel is a threat to idols and false religions that keep people enslaved to the fear of death. He knows that one day the kingdoms of this world will indeed become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. So we see his rage. We see his fear on display in the world. We see hostility toward the gospel, toward the church, toward scriptural truth, toward Christians in general. It's a threat to the devil, the world, the flesh. Now that in itself ought to encourage us a little bit. Why would there be opposition to the gospel unless it was a threat? See, we have a powerful message. We have a powerful Lord who is conquering. And that's why we see the attacks of the world. Otherwise, the world would pay no attention to the gospel and to Christians at all. They would not go out of their way to persecute believers. But we see here the unity of the enemies of God, as we saw before, gathering together against the people of God. Adonis Zedek said, come up to me and help me. And they all gathered their forces and all of their armies and they encamped against Gibeon. We see this throughout the Bible. If you, if you go into covenant with God, if you pledge allegiance to Christ, you will experience opposition. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And over and over again, we see kings and nations raging against the church. Even in a climax at the end of history, there will be an especially aggressive, an especially widespread though short, attack against the church before Christ returns. We see this in various scriptures. You may disagree with me on finer points of eschatology, but I think this is quite clear. Revelation 16, 12 to 16 talks about it. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Revelation 19.19 says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. That's coming against Christ and his church, right? Revelation 20, verses 7 to 9. It says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Old Testament passages like 
Zechariah 14, 1 to 5, I think, speak of this as well. A final battle. Paul speaks of it clearly in 2 Thessalonians 2, a, a great rebellion. There's this great deception over the earth. There's a man of lawlessness that arises. But then, quickly, Christ comes and destroys all the enemies of his people. But just like this coalition of kings in Joshua, the world is raging against Christ now and will be summoned one day for a final battle. And so this is a call then, as Revelation says a few times, for the endurance of the saints. Satan is afraid and raging. We can have confidence because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. But we must persevere with this gospel. But in the midst of it, we can have great hope because, as we see also in this passage, God attends his people with almighty help. We see this in verses 6 to 11, the Lord's almighty help. In verse 6, we see the Gibeonites are in trouble. Now that they were covenanted with Joshua, they call to him for help, and he answers. Verse 6, it says, the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So the Gibeonites now had peace with Joshua. They had pledged allegiance to Israel. They had called themselves the servants of Israel. They became his servants. They pledged allegiance to him. This is not unlike us. If we have made peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ and his cross, if we've risen up to follow Jesus Christ, then he also attends us with his help. Matthew Henry says, those that pay allegiance may reasonably expect protection. The Lord helps his own. We can go to God. We can ask him for help, even as enemies are coming against us, even as we feel the ferocity of the world and Satan's lies and attacks and even the raging of our own flesh. So we see two principles working within us. We can call out to the Lord for help. Psalm 119.94 says, I am yours, save me. If we are his, we can call on him to save us, to help us. He's a very present help in trouble. This is really one of the basics of Christianity, right? Calling out to the Lord for help, trusting that he will answer. In Ed Welch's book, Side by Side, he says we need to learn to say help to God and say help to one another. We see that here. The, the, the unity of the people of God coming to help each other and the Lord's almighty help coming to save. When we feel tempted, when the world opposes us, when Satan seems to be attacking, we take out that shield of faith, we trust in God, we pray, we call out to him, right? We say things like, don't relax your hand, Lord, come quickly, save me. Enemies are surrounding me. I don't know about you, but probably my, my second most common prayer is help me. <laughs> For, second only to the first one, which is have mercy on me, God, or forgive me. This is just the basics of life with Christ. We ask him for help. 
constantly. We see that he truly answers the call in verse 7. It says, So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. So Joshua and the army, his strong army, comes to help the Gibeonites. In verse 9 we read that they marched up all night from Gilgal. And that was a distance of some 35 kilometers that these men walked through the night with great determination to come and help these people who just made a treaty with them. We see their faithfulness that they would come and help and trouble themselves to save these people. But again, this points us to the faithful help of our Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? When we call on Him, even though we were a sinful people, even though we were a mixed up people, He brought us into relationship with Himself. And now He pledges His help to us. When we call out to Him, He will come. If God is for us, who can be against us? As Romans 8 says, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He will never leave us or forsake us to our enemies. And all over the Psalms, we have examples of God's deliverance when his saints are in trouble. Psalm 116, verse 1 is one example. He says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Do you know God wants you to call upon him in the day of trouble? You're not troubling the Lord. He delights to deliver you. Psalm 50, 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. If you've seen this help, well, you return to the Lord in thanksgiving and praise, don't you? And this is obvious here that it wasn't just Joshua and his army helping the Gibeonites that day. Because we see God's sovereign hand, his almighty, omnipotent help from heaven itself in this passage. We see in verse 8 that God gave assurance to Joshua that he would help them. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Now this wasn't anything that Joshua hadn't heard before, right? This was already said in Joshua chapter 1, before Joshua even began any of the conquest. But we see at every stage, God reassures his people, I've given this city into your hands. I've given this people into your hands. Not a man shall be able to stand before you. Isn't it true that even though we might know some of the promises of God, we still need reassurance of them. We still need to hear them again and again. Though we've heard them before, there's always more opportunity to remind ourselves of them, especially in new trials. They are old promises, but they have new applications every day. So God gives Joshua assurance, probably especially as he might have doubts. Are we to really fight for this people that we just covenanted with and all of their deception, he says, yes. And we see God's grace there as well, that he protected these people who came among them. We see also God's mighty hand in the fact that he threw them into panic in verse 10. It says, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel 
who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. We see this often in the Old Testament. God will send people into confusion and rout the enemy before his people when they're in battle. Exodus 14, 24 to 25 is an example. The Egyptians, when they were crossing the Red Sea, he threw them into confusion and panic. Judges 4.15, 1 Samuel 7.10, many examples. We see here he paved the way for Israel by his own power. It's kind of like when you make a trail in the woods. Maybe you go in the quad first and, and make a path, and then it's more easy to get through. God made a way for his people. And this shows that God had the very minds and hearts of the enemies of God in his hand. He was able to make them confused and panicked. He struck terror into their hearts that his people might have an easier time battling. We see here nothing short of the supernatural as they went from Gibeon down to Beth Horon and then to Azekah and Makeda. Beth Horon would have been about 10 kilometers northwest of Gibeon. And then Azekah would be another 40 kilometers southwest of there. And Makeda was probably somewhere west, or sorry, east of Azekah. And so this was no small campaign. This is a long distance that they went. But they were going down also a strategic location there. If I understand correctly, there, there was a path, a road from Gibeon to Beth Horon, which was actually divided into two cities. Upper Beth Horon and Lower Beth Horon. And so they actually had an advantage as they were chasing the enemy downhill. There were other battles in history that actually won decisive victory at that very location. So God put them in a strategic place and routed the enemy before them so they could chase them a long way and destroy them. We see also evidence of the mighty hand of God in verse 11 where we see he rained down hailstones upon them. It says, And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, Yahweh threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. A couple weeks ago, there were bad hailstorms around here, and Janelle and I were actually driving back from Fairview down to GP. And we got caught in this hailstorm, and we actually had to get off the road because it was so heavy. And then eventually we uh, took refuge at the Kennedys. They were kind enough to bring us lost souls in. And But I saw the next day in Red Deer, actually, there were people who actually the hail had crashed through their windshields. Can you imagine being outside under that? I mean, that, that would hurt, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, but here... Look at what God does. Large hailstones, worse even that as the hail came down, it was killing the enemies of the Israelites. It was killing more Canaanites than they killed with the sword. We see God do things like this throughout Scripture a number of times. In Exodus 9, he rained hail and fire down on Egypt. And there are other instances in Scripture and again, as far as Azekah, 40 kilometers 
southwest of there. And he shows his glory there. And he doesn't allow the Israelites to take any glory in this fight. You see that? He killed more people just by sending hail from heaven than any of their forces did. Friends, as God drives us into the fight of the Christian life, and let's remember this is a spiritual fight, not a physical warfare, as Ephesians 6 says. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against powers of darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's against sin and Satan and his forces. It's against the flesh. It's against the world and its lies. It's a spiritual battle, but Look, God promises victory in the midst of this battle, doesn't he? Sin will no longer have dominion over you. I will build my church. He gives us promises like that. And he gives his very power to us. He gives us a strategic location. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He gives us his very own spirit to dwell in us the the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead in power. That very power belongs to us spiritually. And we're standing on the most strategic of locations, the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his word. We have power if we only cry out to God for his help. And as we help one another in this fight, I want to show you one more thing here. Verses 12 to 15, we see Joshua's amazing command. Joshua's amazing command. The writer of the book singles this event out as something particularly amazing that happened that day as the Lord fought for his people. Indeed, he says up to this point, nothing like this had happened before or since. Verse 14. Joshua, what did he do? He spoke to the Lord, it says in verse 12, in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, he commands the sun and the moon. We see here, sun stands still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. What happens? The sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. He says here, is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. And he's saying this is something verified by other historical sources that they had in their day. You note the book of Jasher there, that was a book that the Israelites would have had access to. Now it's lost. Um, no one has recovered this book. First, uh, Second Samuel chapter 1 mentions it as well. There have been forgeries, actually, interesting, the the Mormons, the Church of Latter-day Saints, that cult actually has a book of Jasher, they call it, and so it's uh, sort of a a mock of of this book, but it's, it's not genuine. But at that time, they would have had access to this book, and it would verify, yes, this event happened. (laughs) There were other sources that confirmed this, just like we can Look at the miracles of the Bible and even Jesus' life. We can look at Josephus, what he says about Jesus, how he was crucified and all that. There are other sources. There's archaeology that we've been seeing throughout as we've gone through the book of Joshua that confirms the things that have happened here. 
Even in this very text, we read of cities of southern Canaan. and There are the Amarna tablets, the Amarna letters, these letters from the 14th century, that very time, that speak of these very cities. They existed. But we see here an amazing event. Joshua spoke to the Lord. The Lord heeded his voice, it says in verse 14. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. We may call this uh, a prayer of Joshua. It is, in a sense, but it's more even like a command. You see something unique in Joshua here, that he had such faith at this point and such authority as a prophet. He called out to the very sun and moon, and God heard him. The God who has power over the sun and moon, and he made these things stand still. I think this points us to the power of prayer, but even more so, it points us to Christ. Christ Jesus had authority over nature. He had an authority that everyone recognized. He taught differently with authority, not as the scribes. He had authority on earth to forgive sins. And people in Matthew there, it says that they saw that and they said, wow, they marveled that God had given authority to a man like this. They kind of missed the point because Jesus was not just a man. He was God himself in human flesh. And he showed that as, for instance, when he fought for his disciples, when there was that storm and they were in the boat and they were afraid. And he says to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. He can command the wind and the waves. He's the sovereign Lord over all the earth. Now, some may try to be skeptical of this story. In fact, most people would reject this as a fairy tale, wouldn't they? I was talking to a man yesterday, and he asked me, do I believe in the, the Big Bang Theory? And I said, well, I believe God said, let there be light in the beginning. He says, well, now we're getting into the realm of fairy tales, aren't we? Well, strictly speaking, this could have no natural explanation. Some people try to explain the miracles of the Bible with other natural phenomenon, but there's no explaining this. <laughs> this can't happen naturally. In fact, all the people here would have died if this happened. See, the earth is spinning at 1,600 kilometers per hour, and this, this miracle would imply that the earth actually stopped or slowed its rotation so that the sun could stay in the same position in the sky for about a whole nother day. I was interested in just asking the question, what, what would happen if the earth suddenly stopped rotating or, or slowed? And there was a website, the Smithsonian Magazine posted a Q&A and a reader asked this very question, what would happen if the earth suddenly stopped rotating? Well, a ge geologist answered, he said he it wouldn't be good. At the equator, the Earth's rotational motion is at its fastest, about a thousand miles an hour. If that motion suddenly stopped, the momentum would send things flying eastward. Moving rocks and oceans would trigger earthquakes and tsunamis. The still-moving atmosphere would scour landscapes. But not to worry, such an event would require the same amount of energy stored in the momentum of everything on our rotating planet 
and no physical mechanism on earth can supply that. And so even if it just slowed or even if it, if it stopped, there would be devastating effects. Then how did this happen? No power on earth can do this. Well, God did it. See, if you're a Christian, you are not a materialist. You don't believe this material world is all there is to existence. You believe in God. You believe in the supernatural. You believe in miracles. You believe in a God who can do these things. I believe this, and I'll proclaim it to the world. I don't care who thinks I'm crazy or that I'm believing in fairy tales. When I look at the world, when I look at mountains and trees and the intricacy of the human body and oceans and stars and planets and the vastness of the universe, I see the hand of an almighty God. I look at the Bible I read in Hebrews chapter 1, that Jesus Christ is upholding the universe by his powerful word, just as he created it by his word in the beginning. I see an almighty God sustaining everything. I look in the Bible, I see a God who does miracles, who parts the Red Sea and the Jordan and sends ten plagues on Egypt, who holds the hearts of people in his hands, who can make them do as he wills. I see a God who raises the dead. I see my Lord Jesus Christ. He died for my sins. He went into the grave and he rose again. I see that this is a God who has raised me from the dead. Spiritual death to spiritual life. How could I not believe that God could do something crazy like this? He can do something like this and sustain the whole world at the same time. This is the God who stops the unstoppable and moves the unmovable. He is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And note, why did God do this? Was it just to show his power, his sovereignty? Certainly that was one thing. But note, in verse 14, it says, For the Lord fought for Israel. It was his purpose to fight for his people at that time. We see that he sent hail down, he routed the enemy, and he also kept the sun up so that they could complete their conquest against these people before nighttime, before they had opportunity to regroup. We see this often throughout the Bible. God does extraordinary things on even special days where he goes out for his people. At the Exodus, he moved heaven and earth to deliver his people. As Jesus with his disciples and, and the storm came, he told the wind and the waves to be still. At the cross, the sun went dark at midday as Jesus accomplished salvation for his people. The earth shook, people were raised from the dead, the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And on the last day, as it's described in the Bible, we see when Christ returns to judge the earth, the sun will be darkened. The moon will turn to blood. God will rain down judgment on his enemies as they gather against the saints and the beloved city. In a moment, they will be wiped out. This is the God who fights for his people. We learned back in Joshua 5 that we all need to come under the holy lordship of Christ. Joshua himself, who was the commander of Israel, 
was to come under the commander of Yahweh's hosts. So we also must become the servants of God. But once we are his servants, he fights for us, friends, with his own almighty power. He rent the heavens and came down for our salvation, and he will continue to do so. Isn't this, friends, fuel for your faith this morning? Maybe your prayer life is a bit dry right now. Well, this should pour water on it. This adds fuel to our fire as we walk with God, as we call upon his name. We're to pray to the God who is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, and he's listening to us, and he cares for us, and he protects us. He can stop things that never stop. He can move things that never move. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. Sometimes we need to be reminded who we're praying to. We might get in just going through the motions and we're praying as if we're not really praying to the God of the Bible. We're to be reminded who this God is that we pray to. Maybe, maybe you have trials before you or temptations or you see the rage of the unbelieving world. Maybe it's a family member who's a sinner still, hasn't bowed the knee to Christ. Do you see, this is the God who can stop the very sun in the midst of the sky. He can stop a sinful heart from raging against God. Maybe it's, you see the people in this city and country, we're praying for conversions, and we see that it's, it's hard for Canadians to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, you know what's impossible with man is possible with God. So we can pray with great confidence to our sovereign God. Maybe there's some huge trial in your life or some sin problem in your life. And I'm not saying that God always wills to take suffering away or trials away. That's the prosperity gospel. That's false teaching. I'm not saying God wants to give you every lustful desire of your heart. I'm not telling you to pray for a new car or a raise or your dream home. But maybe there is a, a, a trial. You're calling upon the Lord. There's Maybe there's a, a sin problem and it's like a, a mulberry tree and the roots are going down into your heart and you need strength to get out of that. Well, Jesus says if we have just mustard seed faith, we could move mountains and mulberry trees. As we pray according to the will of God, as 1 John 5.14, we have confidence that he hears us. Friends, we're to be like William Carey who said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God, and I would add, pray great prayers to a great God. This is encouragement for us as believers this morning. But this is also a call to unbelievers. It's known actually here that the people of Canaan worshipped the sun and the moon. They had these idols, the false sun and moon gods that were their deities, they, they worshipped. What would they think as Joshua called out to heaven and the sun and the moon obeyed his word? They would have thought, here is the true people of God. Here is the true God working for his people. They would have thought, our idols are nothing. 
We've put trust in them in vain. Friends, we see that God will squash all rebellion against him. You're trusting in idols today? You want to cast those aside and trust in the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth because he is coming on a day to judge the world in righteousness and he will squash all opposition toward his people. He will fight for his people even to the very end. Revelation 29 to 10 says, that great army marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We have a picture here in Joshua 10 of the judgment of God against the enemies of his people. But there's good news in Joshua as well. You could be like Rahab. You could make a covenant of mercy with this God before he comes in judgment. You, you can be like the Gibeonites who also came into covenant with God and were saved and delivered. If you only come to Jesus Christ this morning, it's a day of grace. Jesus came down from heaven the first time not to judge the world, but to give grace, to save the world, to seek and to save those who are lost. If you come to him, you trust in him, you repent, you turn from your sin, you trust in Jesus to save you. Throw down all your filthy works. They're just filthy rags. Trust in him alone. He alone can justify you. Call out to Christ and he will come quickly to save you and help you. And he will never leave you or forsake you. If you join yourself to Christ, you have to know there will be opposition. You'll experience warfare. There's a cost. But Christ will give you sufficient grace for every trial and temptation if you only call out to him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we rejoice in you, the creator of the heavens and the earth, Lord, and we thank you that you are a gracious God, that you've made a way of salvation for us, Lord. Even in our rebellion, God, while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Lord, I pray that those who come and are yet unbelieving would trust in you. Even right now, Lord, you have the power over their hearts. God, will you change them, regenerate them, bring them into your church, God, and preserve them to the end. Lord, I pray for us as believers, Lord, we would be encouraged. Even as there is a fight, Lord, we would be strengthened just knowing that you are here with us to help us to fight for us, Lord, as we call upon your name, as we join together in the fight. God, encourage our hearts today, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.